Welcome to Famous Lost Words. We are rocking along in season number six of our show. It is great to have you along with us. And Tom, what is going on this week on Famous Lost Words? Christopher, we have some really great audio of In Excess. First of all, we have the lead singer of In Excess, Michael Hutchins from 1982, talking about that album from that era, Shabu Shuba. <laughs> which was a very good album, despite the title. <laughs> yeah. And one of the people he talks about a lot is Andrew Ferris, his co-writer. Now, the really cool thing is once we hear the Michael Hutchins interview, we're going to hear an interview that I did with Andrew Ferris just a few days ago. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to play Andrew, a clip of Michael talking about Andrew 38 years previously. So it's going to be very interesting, and his reaction is much like you would expect because there is, you know, there's quite a lot of emotion coming when it comes to Michael Hutchinson's his sudden passing uh, in 1997. And you can hear the love that these two guys had for each other, particularly in hindsight, Andrew talking about Michael. And Christopher, in light of the recent Go-Go's documentary, I had the pleasure of chatting with Kathy Valentine of the group from those very heady days and what she's doing now and the push to get the Go-Go's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how she saved the band. So that is still to come on this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Plus, Tom, you say you want to try out this grudge match thing between you and me? I sure do. It's called TJ versus the VJ (laughs) as we try to stump each other with music (laughs) trivia. And it's either going to be very, very entertaining or it's going to get very ugly, in which case it'll still be very, very entertaining. Oh, yeah. We're going to play it either way for sure. (laughs) So slide over here and give me a moment. I've got to let you know. That's Need You Tonight in Excess from 1987 in their massive album Kick. You wanna my kind? Tom, in Excess formed from a group of school friends in 1977, but it took the better part of a decade of slogging it out in the bars before the band broke. Now, they weren't the only ones who went through this. Groups like Midnight Oil and Men at Work had the same challenge, but when their opportunities came, these bands were ready. Our first interview is with the late lead singer Michael Hutchins. This is followed by a great conversation from very recently that you had with Andrew Ferris. It was so much fun talking to Andrew, and we did kind of dig deep into the past um, in excess success. In fact, one of the clips from this interview that we're about to play, I play for him and have him react because it's odd. It's got to be odd listening to Michael Hutchins talking about him and Andrew working together and playing it for Andrew all these years later. All right. Tom, Michael Hutchins talks about Aussies finally getting noticed. I think Australians are, are almost, you know, they're saying to themselves, well, we do have it. We, we, there are people here with talent and, and uh, we can believe in ourselves possibly. And, and, and also um, the awareness of Australians is making it come out of the woodwork as well from an international point of view. You know, people in America are saying, hey, you know, they're saying, and, and we're, they're saying, there's, there's an Australian scene there, and Australians mm. are saying, somebody's noticing us. And you and I, Christopher, have talked about how the Australian acts learned their craft the hard way, touring through the massive country that is Australia. Very much like people do in our country. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Hutchins also tells the story of too many Ferrises. Andrew didn't get credit on the sleeve of this LP. How come? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wasn't a happy man. Andrew Ferris. Well, it sort of suits Andrew because um, he's probably the 
the recluse of the band and the most unknown in Australia. And uh, hiding behind the keyboard. Uh, yeah, hiding behind the keyboard. But the the and the, the ironic part is that he and I are the major songwriters, and he got left. <laughs> so everybody, Andrew Farris is the is the main man. How did that happen? I, I don't know. Probably too many Farrises. They didn't believe there were three in the band. I'm saying when they were printing it. Great clip. And like I said, we'll hear from Andrew himself in a few minutes uh, from an interview I did with him just a few days ago. Here, Michael Hutchins talks about the struggle of not being cliched. I never have. This is um, the first time I've been able to put uh, pen to paper and, and come to terms with, um, you know, as they say, as, as you call them, love songs. Before that, it was fairly, you know, social, political inclined. And, and I, I really don't like cliche love songs. So I was trying to write real love songs, or real to me anyway. I was happy that I could get it out because it's, it's, it gets sort of, and it's a pretty queasy thing to try and put emotions down to paper without, you know, sounding uh, like Hey Baby. No, indeed. Their songs were not cliches, especially on ballads like Never Tear Us Apart. And what's another great song by them? Uh, Don't Change, a great love song as a, done as a rock song. They were really well done love songs, but they were also dark and moody or they had a rock edge to them. Just great songwriting and great musicianship. And great performances, too. I don't know if you saw them live, but, um, boy, they were strong on stage. Hutchins was a classic lead singer, I thought. Absolutely. He had, he had kind of that Jim Morrison vibe to him um, on a couple times that uh, I saw them. I saw them probably three times. And in that time, they grew so much in popularity, and so they had to project further out um, right. for, to bigger audiences. But they managed to close that gap, and he was a magnetic lead singer. Yeah, for sure. Here he tells the unusual story of the band forming. We had a f mutual friend that um, was writing songs and recording them to take them actually back to America. This was years ago, four years ago. So, and he got all of us in to to do this this song. We we weren't really that enthused by the song actually, but uh, we all got in and sort of looked around. And none of the Farrises have ever played music together before this point. You see strangely enough and we all got together did this track and and one he said okay thanks a lot and uh we kept going <laughs> and sort of kept going going through the night and really enjoyed the way our music you know the way all the musicians played together That's In Excess from 1982, one of the best songs, Don't Change. And by the way, we have an interview with Michael Hutchins in episode 110. And this is Michael and Gary from In Excess from 1997, just a few months before Michael's passing. So if you're really interested in hearing that, that's episode 110 on Famous Lost Words. Let's leap ahead 38 years. Christopher, this interview was done just a few weeks ago, and it's me in conversation with Andrew Ferris. Okay, Andrew Ferris was, aside from Michael Hutchins, the main guy in In Excess. He wrote all of the music, pretty much, and some of the lyrics, okay? So he was a crucial part of the two-man operation that NXS was from its creative standpoint. Right. They were a great band, all told, but these two guys, Andrew and Michael, formed the nucleus of the group. So on October 2nd, Andrew released a new album called 
Love Makes the World. It's actually an EP, five or six songs, um, and it's really mostly kind of a country album. Wow. It's more American roots music. There's a little bit of a twang to it in some of the songs. And some of the songs are pretty good. Some of the songs are really good um, and sound like they could be in excess songs if you just put Michael on the lead vocals. Oh, wow. And there's one or two songs. There's one song at the very end that sounds like classic new wave. It has no relation to the rest of the album, which I, which again is mostly <laughs> acoustic oriented. Uh, this last song is like right. synths and all that stuff, but it's really well done. And you can tell that he's got a, a great deal of talent. So it was a real pleasure talking to Andrew Ferris a few weeks ago. And we start like we normally do by playing the artist a clip from the past. So Andrew, what we do on this show is we play classic interviews and we talk about them, but sometimes we get to play them for the artists themselves. So what I want to do is I want to play a clip of In Excess from 1982. So we interviewed, uh, and it was just Michael in the studio with us, and he was talking about writing songs, but he was specifically talking about writing songs with you. It's actually a really cool bit about how you guys wrote songs together. Well, originally we used to just write purely out of getting into a room together, mm-hmm. and whatever came out when we finished well, was it. But And Don't Change is the only song on the album that, that we did that with. But... Uh, Usually Andrew Andrew writes about six out of ten of the songs, and I write majority, you know, just about all the lyrics. And as Andrew and I have had a sort of musical relationship since we're about fourteen, um, mm. it's almost an ESP writing situation. He'll we'll talk about ideas when we're at clubs and things. He'll go off and start writing music. I'll start writing the words for it, and uh, we we bring it together. And usually, you know, it's, hey, you just wrote what I needed. So. <laughs> That there is Michael talking about uh, how you guys uh, would write together. So what do you think about that? What do you think about what he had to say? And also, you know, obviously there's going to be some emotions with just hearing his voice speaking about you from, what, uh, 38 years ago. But it's, I found it kind of cool that, uh, that when I went into the archives knowing I was going to speak to you today that he was there talking about you. Yeah, no, that, you know, I, I, yeah, I have mixed emotions about that. But, yeah, yeah. look, to answer your first question... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what he said is right, uh, in the, especially in those years, uh, you know, the, especially the 80s in particular and the, uh, you know, early 90s. Uh, actually, the biggest success of In Excess was actually in the early 90s. Right. But the, the, th- the thing is, is that the way we worked together, a lot of it was, you know, I would have sort of music ideas, sometimes lyrics and complete songs, and Michael would bring his lyrics along and we would sort of try to match him up. He's right. He's right. Yeah, it's kind, of, kind of the way it works. Okay, hold that thought, Andrew. I want to ask you about the heyday of In Excess. Oh, and that time you worked with Nile Rodgers, as well as the downside of fame. Stick around. This is Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Still to come, it's TJ versus the VJ. Yeah. As Tom and I go toe-to-toe, testing each other's musical knowledge, I know I'm going to lose, but that's okay. <laughs> that's the See, that's the voice of a very competitive man, just so you're clear here. You that's know. right. Plus, a brand new interview with <laughs> Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's. Now back to Tom's recent conversation with Andrew Ferris of NXS. 
So, Andrew, let's talk about the, that heyday. Like, to me, the song that changed everything for NXS was either The One Thing or Original Sin. And what I mean by that is kind of the consciousness of the rest of the planet catching up to what Australia already knew, that NXS was a great band. And I think maybe, uh, perhaps, and this is just me talking, but Original Sin perhaps more so was, the, was a turning point because it captured the sound that would make you guys really famous. Can you tell me about that song and what it was like to record that? I love Original Sin. That yeah. was awesome. But the the previous song, uh, the one thing that you mentioned, yes. and the one before that, or what was either after or before that, was Don't Change. I know when Bruce Springsteen came out to Australia, he played that here in Australia live. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Anyway, um, with Original Sin, uh, that song, uh, its beginnings were... were I had already had the uh, riffs and the demo, pretty much uh, the music uh, tracked uh, on my little eight-track tape recorder with the, with the you know the groove and the, and the and pretty much the arrangement of the music, and I played it to Michael. He loved it. Well, would you believe we were playing? I think it might have been. I could be wrong, but it was somewhere, maybe Vancouver, maybe. But I know it was right. Canada. Nile Rogers came backstage. And he comes backstage, and we're like. Holy <laughs> it's not. He's in the room. You know what I mean? Like, we're looking at each other because we knew exactly who he was, you know? Yeah. And he goes, I've been listening to you guys on the radio and I see you on MTV. I really want to work with you guys. And we're like, <laughs> look at each other like, really? You know, wow. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Right, let's go. You know, so he said, you know, get your best song together and I'll meet you back in New York City. So we went down to Florida. Yeah. And... Along the way, I think Michael penned a lyric for Original Sin. He was watching mm-hmm. kids playing in a schoolyard, and he said, that's the lyric. And mm-hmm. so then, you know, because uh, little kids, well, I don't know, they're more observers than judges, you know. Um, they ob- Kids are great at observing things. We tend to do that more as we get older, is to judge. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so... When we got to Florida, we, we rehearsed the song, Original Sin. We, when we got back up to New York, and we were pretty excited. I mean, I was 23. I guess Michael would have been 22 or something. And we're all young guys. And we're in, as we went to load our gear into the power station in New York City, the uh, record uh, recording studio, David right. Bowie's gear was being, was being moved out. Oh. He just recorded Let's, Let's Dance, Dance, the album. Right. Oh, that's so cool. And now, was Bowie still there? Yeah. And the next day, <laughs> we moved our gear in. That's right. And then literally the next day. And then Noel Rogers and Jason Cassaro, the engineer, they were the ones that, I think, pretty sure, they were the production team that worked on, on Let's Dance, for yeah. the whole album for David yeah. Bowie. When we, in excess, when we moved our gear in, we basically had exactly the same kind of opportunity that, that David had just had, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, wild, right? And Niall goes, hey, man, goes, you got a chord chart for this thing or something, you know? And I, I was I was, kind of, I was terrified, I got to tell you. You know, I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, Niall. Uh, so I sat down and I kind of scratched out some chords or whatever. I tried to make it look like I knew what I was doing. Right. And even though I had the riff, the guitar riff already written, I knew what I wanted to do. He and Niall and my older brother, Tim uh, Farris, you know, they, they tracked yeah. the guitar riff in stereo. If you listen to the recording, yeah. it's really cool. That's awesome. So it's a really tight riff, right? That dun, 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 dun. 
That's so great. I love that. But it's both of them playing together simultaneously mm-hmm. on the recording. And Daryl Hall sang backup on that. Is that correct? That's true. That and that yeah. was wild in itself because we, you know, we'd done some backing vocals and we thought they were pretty good. And now goes, these are pretty good. But can I make a call? And we're like, sure. <laughs> the next minute, Daryl Hall walks through the door. You, you got to, you can't, you can't imagine what that was like for us. Mm-hmm. It was just bizarre. That's Daryl Hall. You know, like he's standing in the room. Yep. The next minute, he's singing on our song. That's you know, amazing. so it was, it was amazing. Well, we got to hear that song right now. Original sin in excess with Nile Rodgers and Daryl Hall from 1982. Dream on white boy. So that kind of thing really, like, that was one of those moments, it was a big moment, and then you guys blew up with the album Kick. So what was that like? That must have been just amazing, great moments happening, but it must have been hard as hell to tour on an album so big. Or maybe that wasn't the hard part. Maybe the hard part was following it up. You know, I always find that when you have massive success, whenever you talk to someone about that, they're very thankful for it, but part of it they feel like part of it was like a curse, was like really tough thing to go through. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I won't lie. I think it's a bit of everything. Uh, yeah, I think some folks have really nailed it when they say, you know, it's good and bad. It's not, it's not so much you change, but people's perceptions of you change. Right. You know, and yeah. what they think of you or, or, you know, what they... And, hey, folks... It's entertainment. It's yeah. just entertainment. Your, your job is to entertain people. You know, so, like, you, that's all you're trying to do, really. But then <laughs> everything else takes on a different dimension. But you're right. It was hard to follow it up. But I'm happy to say, to segue and say, especially following up the Kick album, because I agree, we had five top ten international hits off that one album. It was a monster. Um, and we toured it forever. And, yeah. And it, yeah, it was a huge, huge thing. But yeah. The album that followed it up, which is the X album, it, we yeah. celebrate its 30th release on the 25th of September. Excellent. And that was such a great album. Right. And, but you're right. When you say following up Kick, yeah, that was a doozy, trying to yeah. actually navigate that. But I'm proud of In Excess because we did it. We went and yeah. did it. And we did it together. And I, you know, there's an old saying, and I'm going to say it anyway, but you can achieve anything in life as long as you don't, care who takes the credit and as long as you do it together that's great and um i love the song my brother can i ask you was it written for michael uh i co-wrote the song with john stevens who's an awesome singer and a great songwriter and a friend of mine yeah Uh, he lost uh, a family member who's very close to him okay and of course you know with michael's passing i I lost a great friend and and my songwriting partner at that point in my life and uh it's really a song about losing men in your yeah. life, or boys, or, you know, it's, it, and males, <laughs> the male of our human species aren't necessarily very good at about talking about loss. Uh, women are much better at it than men, I think. Yeah. But anyway. Thanks very much, Andrew Ferris. The new EP is called Love Makes the World, and uh, the new single is called All the Stars Are Mine, and, uh, and it's just tremendous. So much more I could talk to you about, but thank you very much for, uh, for calling us and talking to us on Famous Lost Words. It's been really good talking to you, Tom. Look, if folks are interested in checking out what I'm doing right now, please, please head to my website and Facebook, yeah. andrewferris.com. All right, take care. Bye-bye. 
All right, Tom, take care now. That's Andrew Ferris of InXS reflecting on the heyday of that band and what he's up to now. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Can you hear Great song from the summer of 1981, that's Our Lips Are Sealed by the Go-Go's. You know, there's been a lot of chat recently about the Go-Go's, mostly due to the release of that very excellent Go-Go's documentary, which tells the story of their history, their success, their excess, their lawsuits, their breakup, their reunion, but most of all, their influence on many other bands and many other young women in particular wanting to pursue a life in music. To get more of the story, I decided we need to hear from a go-go herself, and that go-go is Kathy Valentine, bassist and songwriter for the group. And Tom will have that in just a few moments. Famous Lost Words is heard on radio stations across Canada. And if you'd like to sponsor our show and have your message heard by thousands of listeners, email us, famouslostpod at gmail.com. That's famouslostpod at gmail.com. And Tom needs a new minor hat for all the excavating that he's doing, so... (laughs) please. And of course, who better to speak for your product than a geek with a high voice and a legendary figure in Canadian music? And I'm not going to tell you which one is which. <laughs> oh, man, you're, you're really selling this thing, you know. <laughs> now, Tom has a brand new interview with Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's. Tom, set the scene for us, please. Kathy has a new memoir out. It's called All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir, which also comes with a soundtrack of a bunch of new songs. A great idea. So, before I got to her days in the Go-Go's, I had to ask her about one of the new songs in particular. One of my favorite songs is a song next to Merle. I just love this part where your father says he's proud of you because he can put your Go-Go's albums next to his Merle Haggard albums. And you, even though you love the compliment and you're glad to have it, you very humorously point out that the Go-Go's literally go next to Merle Haggard if you put them in your record collection alphabetically. I thought that was so funny. (laughs) Because even though it's a meaningful moment, it's also a very practical moment. And, uh, and you're both of those things at once. I love that. Just loved it. Well, thank you. And that's kind of, kind of part of my personality. It's like, yeah. you know, I, I don't make a joke out of everything. But I think, I think when you don't want to get too mired or weighed down, it's like I want, to get, I want to get a point across and I want to get sadness across. But I don't also kind of want to put across the message, but hey, I'm okay, you know. Right. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but watching the Go-Go's documentary gave me a whole new appreciation for the band. So what do you think about all the renewed attention uh, to you and the other members of the band and the band as a whole? Well, I think it's really nice because speaking for myself, I had kind of gotten used to being overlooked and dismissed a lot. I I felt like we had a very distinctive, an un, unavoidable, not a, unavo- a, a very um, irrefutable, yeah, uh, yeah, place in history. We did yeah. something that whether you want to acknowledge or not, or hold us up or uplift us, it's it happened. You know what I yeah. mean? So, but mm-hmm. I've gotten kind of used to the fact that even in stories or books that are called women who rock or oh. women who change yeah. music, often go goes were either left out or or like a footnote, I, I had gotten used to that in a way and just kind of learned to go, okay, well, whatever. I know for a fact that we had a huge impact and influenced a lot of people. I've had people walk up to me on the street, say, 
the go-go's changed my life. So mm-hmm. I, it wasn't like I didn't doubt that, but I got used to being, you know, not really having it. It seemed like the more salacious parts of the band story overshadowed our accomplishments. Like all you'd hear is like, oh, they imploded from drugs and alcohol and and uh, ego and money squabbles. That's all you would hear. It wasn't the full story, you know. It's a, an yeah. aspect. So I was really grateful that the documentary uplifted us, showed the joy, showed the fun, showed the resilience and the drive and the mm-hmm. hard work. I think it's it's something that's just been overdue and really nice. And also, you know, let's not forget about the fact that when there's a band, there's often the focus is on the lead singer, but you are an integral part of that band. And in many ways, you know, maybe I'm overstating it, but in a way, with the song Vacation, you saved the band's life. You prolonged the lifespan of that band because that first album, Beauty and the Beast, a huge smash, and you guys have to instantly whip up a second album, which is patently unfair in the grand scheme of making art. And so there's a problem coming up with good material that quickly, and here comes Kathy to the rescue with the song Vacation, a song that you had written before. And so hang on, let's hear a little bit of that song. Here's Vacation. That's Vacation, the Go-Go's from 1982 on Famous Lost Words. We're talking to Kathy Valentine, the bass player from the Go-Go's. What did that song mean to you and the band? Well, I, I love, in my book, I write, I write about writing that song, and I was 19 years old, and if you had told me that this song would be my signature song and kind of trademark song that would earn me a living for decades, I mean, not completely living but you know i still get the licenses and it gets put in movies and played on the radio and i'll be in the supermarket and hear it so it's an absolute thrill i would have never guessed that it's something just coming from the heart from a very pure place would have such a longevity and uh it did keep the band alive and i think yes. it's nice to hear you say that because yeah. i don't know how long the go-go's would have lasted i think it was no accident that I joined and was the last member. And I think, you know, not only would bring in more material, but, you know, I worked really hard at trying to make that band fun long after people were having fun. I just made it my job. Like, oh, my God, this is such an incredible thing. This is my dream come true. This happens to one in a million bands, you know. And I was just like, I almost made myself go crazy trying to, keep it going because I just couldn't imagine not having it. This has been my dream for years. So uh, the the song, the band, it was it all meant so much to me and losing it all was devastating. But and I had let it overtake me, you know. Yeah. But that's part of the journey and part of the story of the book is how you don't really ever want to lose sight of who you are, no matter how wonderful something is. That was one of my right. lessons that I had to learn. You know, it is funny. At one point in the documentary, you look a little dazed and you said, this is a circus. You know, I can't imagine, We, you know, we've spoken to so many artists who live through a time where their lives just exploded. We've talked to Alanis Morissette around the time of Jagged Little Pill. We've talked to Peter Frampton around uh, about his experience with Frampton Comes Alive. And, you know, I would point to the kind of the mania that happened when you guys hit it big, you're opening for big acts, 
you're being exposed to so many people. You go to England and then that brings you up a little more and then you're playing huge venues. How do you look back on those really wild, wild years? And I mean wild in terms of popularity. Well, I'm very grateful. I mean, everything that's good in my life, you know, traces in some way back to that because I got to achieve something that every musician would love to achieve, you know. Every musician would would love to be, you know, playing in front of large audiences that love your music. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful thing to experience. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I also learned how to grow up. I, it brought me to sobriety. Uh, it has opened doors. My book was a, is a really well-written literary memoir, but I don't know if I would have gotten it or gotten readers if I didn't have that rec- name recognition. You know, I was part of a, a musical on Broadway. We have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, there's these women that We've had all these ups and downs and, you know, betrayals and breakups and lawsuits, all this stuff, but there's something stronger than all of it, and it's a bond, and we grew up together, and it's just, it's quite a quite a thing to look back on. Of course, you know, people always talk, Kathy, about the Go-Go's in terms of gender, and the achievement of an all-female band writing their own songs and playing their own instruments and going to number one is a great feat, of course, one to be celebrated. But none of those things could have happened without the songs, great pop songs and wonderful rock songs. Do you think that part of the band's legacy is overlooked at all? Well, I think that none of it would be relevant or have any meaning without the songs. And, uh, you know, I think the band would have been just as success, just as successful if we were males because of the songs. Right. I think, you know, uh, this, there's nothing, nothing can take away the facts of the power of what a good song is. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to songs from the same era, from other bands that were big in the 80s, and they don't, they're not as well constructed, they're not as hooky, they're not as good. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here's the inevitable question that I'm sure you're getting asked a lot, and that is, why aren't the Go-Go's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I have to admit it, it took the movie to make the case for me, and I'm a you know music lover, um, but you clearly have an influence on a lot of artists, and you had great songs, and even though your time on the charts was relatively short, it wasn't as short as some bands who are already in there. Now, I don't want to you know, pit artists against artists, artists who are already in there and whether they deserve it or not. That's not that's not really the point of this. But do you think the increased attention is going to make that possibility happen? I think that, um, you know, the documentary has done a lot, but there are people on the... Now, the people at the Rock Hall of Fame, yeah. they're wonderful people. And they, you know, they are... They advocate for women and for the Go-Go's. But there's a, a committee that has some members that don't believe the Go-Go's belong in, in there. So I'm not sure what the reasons are. I personally believe that a museum's job is to educate people and, you know, bring visibility. And it shouldn't be just predicated on how many records or how many hit songs you had. Uh, you know, if it's going to be the rock and roll music hall of fame, then it yeah. should honor pioneers. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 
people that kind of change the game. And the Go-Go's changed the game. Thanks very much, Kathy. Thanks for talking to us. I know we have to wrap up now. And um, the memoir is called All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. It also comes with a soundtrack of a bunch of brand new songs. And they're so cool. They're like a soundscape to go along with the book. They could be a musical, like it could be a Broadway musical because of the way it intertwines spoken word with incredibly cool music. So congratulations on that. All the best in the future. I hope we get to see you guys, the Go-Go's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I hope to get down to New York to see the Broadway production, if it's still going to be playing. And here's hoping that the world opens up soon and that you're a big part of it on stage. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Just a few days after that chat, we found out that the Go-Go's have indeed been nominated this year for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the very first time. We'll find out in a few weeks if they get in. Great chat, Tom. That's Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's. All right, Tom. Next up, you and I face off with the very first episode of a brand new feature, TJ versus the DJ, seconds away on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words with a brand new segment. <laughs> this is either going to float or it's going to come crashing down and it's going to be awful, but we're, <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. It's called TJ versus the VJ, and I think you can probably guess what that means. That's right. Tom, take it. TJ, that's me, Tom Jokic. VJ, that's Christopher Ward, the original Much Music VJ. Okay, so we're basically going to try to stump each other, and we're going to see what happens here. Okay, Christopher, what was the second biggest-selling Fleetwood Mac album? Oh, um, well, I would naturally have said it was the album that preceded Rumors, which I believe was just called Fleetwood Mac. And that would unfortunately be wrong. <laughs> okay? So I'm going to give you one more okay. try. Not Tusk. Think, Tell me nope, it's not Tusk. It's not Tusk. But you have to go ahead a little bit, not behind. I don't know. Okay. I give up. Okay. It's Tango in the Night, which I'm surprised about. But Tango in the Night had three or four really big hits. It had Big Love. It had Seven Wonders, it had Little Lies, and it had Everywhere. And I think there was even one more single from that. So it was actually fairly successful, and it was a return to the charts in a big way for Fleetwood Mac exactly 10 years after Rumors. Tom, I'm afraid you're going to know the answers to all of my <laughs> TJ versus the VJ questions, okay. but I'm going to get into you anyway. All right. And I promise to the listeners that he has not seen these answers beforehand. That's right. You know, like somebody in a, in a presidential debate or something. <laughs> um, Tom, what was the name of James Taylor's first band? Okay, well, I actually know this because I was going to do this on Cool Song Facts. I think it was called The Flying Machine. Mm-hmm. And in what song were they name-checked? They were name-checked in the song Fire and Rain. Something about a flying machine crashed to the ground. Is that right? Sweet Dreams and Flying Machines... In pieces on the ground. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. funny because... Nicely done. Well, thank you. But I do have to acknowledge the fact that I didn't know that until a few weeks ago when I was doing a little bit of research for Cool Song Facts. So I didn't know that they were mentioning... Oh, well, let's do this in the past then. <laughs> yeah, we'll do this. Sherman? Sherman? Set the Wayback Machine for... Okay. Three weeks ago. Okay, Christopher, you are a <laughs> Beatles geek... But I've got one of the geekiest wow. Beatles questions uh, around. I hope you can get this. Uh, it's a cool, very cool fact for sure. So when Ringo got tonsillitis in 1964, who 
replaced him as drummer for eight concerts. Pete Best? No. It was a guy named Jimmy Nickel who actually thought that it would turn around his career, and it did not whatsoever. <laughs> Let me ask you, Christopher, right. what American band has had the most gold albums ever? And you have to remember who's asking you this question. What American band has had the most number of gold albums? Yes. Consider the source of the question, Christopher. Yeah. Well, that means it has to be Van Halen or Kiss, <laughs> I can only say. It's Kiss with 26 gold albums. <laughs> I don't even want to believe that that's true, but I, I think I'm forced to. Okay, I got one for you. Okay. Um, you, know the song, you know the song Killing Me Softly? Yes. Roberta Flack's big hit? Yes. It was written about a singer. Mm-hmm. Who was that singer? I believe that the person who wrote the song, and it was not Roberta Flack, saw a concert by Don McLean. And and uh, she did. That's what it was inspired by. Her name is Lori Lieberman. Okay. And I met her um, at the Riverboat Coffee House when I was a dishwasher, and uh, she was playing there that week. And she told me the story that she had seen Don McLean. She'd been moved to tears by his performance, feeling that he was reading her diary in effect. Wow. And she went and told these two guys, these two songwriters, who were her producers and who were developing her career. And they went, that's a great idea. Thank you. And they changed it into a song, and it was covered by Roberta Flack. Uh, Lori Lieberman recorded it. Um, it did not uh, make a success for her, and she did not get credit <gasps> as a co-writer. No. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is not good. And, of course, Lauren Hill and the Fugees did a great version of that song as well. Oh, and beautiful it's cover. It's such a yeah. beautiful song. That's a great story. Okay, mm -hmm. here's one for you, Christopher. This is a bit of a softball. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna underhand this one into you. Here it is: the first rock album oh, no. to have lyrics printed on the back cover. Sergeant Pepper. That's exactly right. Sergeant Pepper. Oh, my reputation's <laughs> intact. Okay, Tom. Who's credited as having written the song "Whole Lot of Love"? Um. Okay. So originally, "Whole Lot of Love" was credited to Page and Plant. But then so many people noticed that it was it was very, very similar to Muddy Waters. Is that correct? Close. It's very close to a song called You Need Love yes. by Willie Dixon, by who, Willie um, Dixon. who was a collaborator who produced Muddy Waters. Oh, okay. Um, and again, I had a chance to meet Willie Dixon just a couple of years before he died in California. And he told me that it was his grandkids who came home from school one day and said, you know, Grandpa, they've recorded your song. And that's wow. how he knew. And there was an out-of-court settlement in the mid-'80s, I think. That's good. He probably could have used that money many years earlier. Uh, but thank God he did get some of it anyway, because that is a huge hit for Led Zeppelin. And boy, it really does, does sound similar. Um, to uh, the Willie Dixon song. Well, Willie Dixon is, I mean, one of the principal architects of American Chicago blues. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he wrote songs like Little Red Rooster and Backdoor Man and I Just Want to Make Love to You. And, you know, I mean, this guy is a, just a monster uh, songwriter and he one of the greatest. Absolutely. Great stuff. Okay, there you go. I Hit have me. no idea. No, I'm done. I've got all the... I got one more. I have one more too, but it's really narrow. But let me, let's give this a try, Christopher. What Toronto band had a hit with the song Soul City? Do you remember this one? 
the Partland Brothers. Oh, out of the park, Christopher. Well done. Well done. Let's have a listen to that one. So that's a great song from 1987, the Partland Brothers and Soul City. And Christopher drags out a bunt signal for that one to save the game, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom. <laughs> Here's here's the break point. Okay, this is it. Graham Nash left the hit band The Hollies, who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, I think I already know what you're going to ask. I, I already know what you're going to ask. Marrakesh Express. They would not record Mar- Marrakesh Express, and he said, "That's it. I'm out of here." And he got Crosby, Stills, and Nash to do it instead. All right, but what did it miss? What did it need in his mind? Um, that this is this is obscure. What is it that it was missing? Well, according to Graham Nash, it needed a train, <laughs> which was provided by Stephen Stills' overdubbed guitar parts. Oh, okay. And a bonus Graham Nash question for you. Yeah. He started a publishing company with his um, fellow Hollies band member, Alan Clark, and who was one of the first acts that they signed who went on to some success? Oh, boy. Um, uh, Alan Clark and Graham Nash. I'm going to say, oh, oh, I'm going to say Joni Mitchell. Reggie Dwight is the correct answer. They signed Elton John. That's great. Very cool. Okay, TJ versus the (laughs) DJ. I have no idea what the final score was, but that was a lot of fun. Thanks very much for joining us. That does it for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Our show was created and produced by Tom Jokic, executive producer Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. If you enjoyed this week's show, get caught up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe and review us with five stars if you feel so inclined. It goes a long way to making sure we get to make more shows. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.